Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to discuss a, a big subject, which is um, the, the choices that we make in our life and how this, um, how this sort of uh, correlates with um, Hashem's will for us. Or let me put it in another way, in a more sort of classic uh, formulation. Um, what our destiny is uh, individually versus um, what free choice we have. Um, and this is, of course, a, a famous, a famous seeming paradox. Because, on the one hand, if God knows everything, and God knows everything that we're going to do, then do we really have free choice? Because you can say, well, seemingly I can choose this or I can choose that. But if God already knows that I'm going, what I'm going to choose, did I ever have the opportunity to choose anything else? Right. So this is something that has confounded um, philosophers for forever, since for all of time. Um, since I really don't want to discuss that problem, <laughs> I want to discuss something else. I'm going to give you my, my best answer to that. that um, and, you know, again, this is something that um, you, you, you have to think about, and, and um, there are many ways to approach this problem. It's a, it's a very famous problem. If you're interested in it, there's tons of literature on it. I'll just tell you my, my, uh, my, my understanding of it. What, what puts me at peace with it. You see, uh, I always like to think of something that I learned in, 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 in geometry um, uh, when I was in high school, actually. There's something called um, three-dimensional geometry, and it goes by many names. Non-Euclidean geometry, Boolean geometry. These are all different names for more or less the same thing, which is that it's, it's a geometry against a curved space. Normally speaking, when we do geometry, we're, we're doing it on a piece of paper, it's two-dimensional. But when you do it against a curved space, when you add an extra dimension and it's three-dimensional, all of a sudden it, it has different properties. So the example that, that it is very interesting is parallel lines. So parallel lines, the, the definition of parallel lines is that they, they never interact. They never cross over to each other. That, that is the definition of parallel lines, right? That's what makes them parallel. Um, however, if you put parallel lines against a, a curved space, parallel lines actually intersect. So that's, that's something that's um, very surprising. But this is just, you know, well, I guess it's advanced geometry, but it's, it's basic math. Let's put it that way. So how does this apply to the whole dilemma of free choice versus destiny? Again, if, if God knows what I'm going to pick, do I really have freedom to pick anything else? Right? So, so in, what you see is, is that basically there are certain, certain laws of nature that operate in this dimension that we live in. But the world is actually has, you know infinite numbers of spiritual dimensions beyond this dimension. And those spiritual dimensions don't operate according to the same limitations that exist in this dimension. So what appears to be a paradox for us in this dimension and may, may in fact be 100% an actual paradox, right? Nonetheless, in the higher dimensions, which don't function according to the limitations of this dimension, those paradoxes aren't paradoxes at all. They, 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 they just simply aren't. And so the illustration that I was giving you on a mathematical level 
is that the definition of parallel lines is that thing which will never intersect. They never will. And yet you see when you add an extra dimension, when you go from two-dimensional geometry, Euclidean geometry, to non-Euclidean geometry, well, parallel lines intersect. So there's an example of something where the laws change as you add dimensionality. And so this paradox, which seems to us irreconcilable, the idea that how can I really have free choice if God already knows in advance which I'm going to choose, could I have ever choose anything else? Appears to us to be a, a, a conflict, but it isn't a conflict. In other words, the Torah tells us we have free choice, 1,000%, and God knows in advance what we're going to do. And there's no problem whatsoever with this, right? Because God is not subject to the limitations of this dimension and of our own logical constructs and constraints. Okay. So what we get from this is that there is no contradiction between the fact that God knows everything and the fact that we legitimately do have free choice in this world. Now, like I say, there, there are many solutions or many ways to approach this problem, but whatever solution you're most comfortable with, the bottom line is, from a Torah perspective, if we want to think as Jews, we have to understand that we do 1,000% have free choice in this world and that God is all-knowing, and that these two things are not in conflict with each other. That's the, that's the main takeaway. All right. Now, with this in mind, I want to show you uh, an illustration of it in terms of Parsha's Balak, um, this week's Parsha. And you can see how this begins to affect our lives and our choices. You see, Parsha's Balak deals with Bilam. Bilam is a, is, a, is a fascinating character. I'm going to kind of go deep, in, and I saw a, a remez in his name, a, a hint in his name uh, over Shabbos that I want to share with you, something that's got, you know, really struck me. But um, that aside for a moment, let's just understand who Bilam is. Bilam is, was, was considered the greatest prophet of the non-Jewish world. And in fact, he even is compared to Moshe, to, to Moses. And in fact, it says that, um, that, that, that the non-Jewish world at the end of days will say, had we had someone like Moses, we, we also would have been like the Jewish people, essentially. And God will say back to them, I gave you Bilaam. Now, now Bilaam, you see, we can never underestimate the importance of what our free choice and what it means to refine ourselves spiritual, spiritual, spiritually is. You see, Moshe was not just Moshe. Um, there's a, there's a, a disputed medrash, whether this is actually an authentic medrash or whether it was sort of like just a teaching that was ultimately incorrectly classified as a medrash. What difference does it make? The difference is, is that if something is a quote-unquote quote a, a medrash or midrash, then it has a certain level of um, credibility and, and authenticity to it. Um, if, it's, if it doesn't have the, the, the status of a medrash, then, then maybe, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. Okay, so anyway, I'm just telling you that this teaching that I'm about to share with you is, is a little bit controversial. 
However, there, there's, a, there's a nice point in it, which is that there was a, a, a king, I think it was in Ethiopia, I'm not sure about that, but they, they, they wanted to know who is this, uh, you know, you know who, who is this, this, this Moshe person? Who is, who is Moses? And I'll just skip to the end of it just to tell you the point. They, 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 they look into his face and, and they see just, he's a, he's a murderer, he's a thief, he's, he's every horrible thing. And yet they see that, that, that he's this, the greatest leader. And he says, yes, I did have those qualities within myself, but I worked on myself and, and I became who I am now. Um, so, so from this you see the following that according to this teaching, even Moshe was someone who was not, um, who was not just sort of like perfect and he didn't have to do any work on himself. That, that Moshe had almost the opposite qualities that he, that he ultimately mastered. And there's... The, What's, 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 there, there are two things that are interesting about this teaching, which is why I'm bringing them to you, and why it's important to know this vis-a-vis who Bilaam was and who Bilaam wasn't, ultimately. Because we, you know, Rav Moshe Feinstein was uh, quoted as saying, you know, people talk about great people, great people, great people. What's, what's, what's a big person? It's, 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 a, it's a little person who became big, right? That's what a great person is. In other words, you know, I heard Rabbi Green discuss this, and, and I don't know if this is a, a particularly American phenomenon or whether this is just the modern era where, where so much uh, convenience is, is at our fingertips that hard work is, is become more and more alien to us. But the whole, um, the whole Marvel Comics kind of like, uh, sort of like, um, origin story. Like the best example probably is Spider-Man, right? So Peter Parker is a nerdy teenager. He, you know, is unpopular. He doesn't have any friends. He's like a weakling. He gets bitten by a radioactive spider. And the next day he's big and he's strong and he's like, he's amazing, right? So what did he do? He got bitten by a radioactive spider. What work did he do? He didn't do any work whatsoever. In other words, it just happened to him, right? So we tend to think, and this is the problem with when we mythologize the characters in, or the people, the human beings, the actual flesh and blood people in the, in the Torah, when we mythologize them, what happens is, is that we think that, oh, they were given these exalted souls, which is true, by the way, and that with that came no work. But, but what it leaves out is the fact that there was phenomenal, phenomenal amounts of work that, that they did in addition to it, you know? You know, the greatest, if you look at, if you look at um, just different fields, um, you know, like in sports, in music, in writing, the people who are really the all-time greats, the superstars, are people who have a tremendous amount of talent, and then a tremendous amount of hard work. It's that combination. It's not just the talent alone. 
It's the big talent and the super hard work. Those things together usually add up to greatness, you know? Um, so, so let's get back to Bilaam. So Bilaam, when, when you understand that Moshe actually worked on himself a tremendous amount, right, which is what this teaching brings us, you see that, well, then Bilaam also would have had to have worked on himself a tremendous amount. But we see that Bilaam was a tremendously corrupt character. It says that he was romantically involved with his donkey, right? And actually used relations with his donkey to somehow um, arrive at divination and things like that. So in that way, there's already like, you know, a, an unseemly sort of level of corruptness. He also was the Medrash, this is a real Medrash now, that um, the other one might be too, but this one for sure is, that the Medrash says that Bilam was one of Paro's main advisors and was the one who advised Paro that since the Savior is going to arrive among the Jewish people and bring them out of Egypt, he's talking about Moshe, he's the one who gave Paro the advice to drown all the Jewish children. So you see, Bilam is like a super bad guy. Bilam, Kabbalistically speaking, is the reincarnation of Lovin. Lovin is the one who, of course, tried to kill out Jacob and the 12 tribes before they even got off the ground. Before the, even the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, got off the ground, Lovin was trying to wipe them out. So Kabbalistically, we say that, that Bilam is a reincarnation of Lovin, and that Lovin came from the snake in the Garden of Eden. Right? So this is like a serious... But... Remember, the word nachash, which means snake, is the same gematria, the same numerical equivalent as the word mashiach. Right? Why? Why is that? Because what we're talking about is a raw power that needs to be harnessed and transformed. Do you see? So the idea that Bilaam could have been super great, you see that he has this like phenomenal energy attached to him. But that also requires a phenomenal level of work, which clearly he didn't put in, in order to harness that. Right? So he becomes a very tragic figure. Not that anyone's crying over Bilaam, believe me. But nonetheless, there was great, great potential there. And to tell you how great the potential was there, in the five books, meaning the Torah, right? You know, Torah is also an umbrella term. It can include the oral law, also the whole Gomorrah can include the Tanakh and everything like that. But to, to refer to the Torah is just right now for the five books. In the five books themselves, the clearest reference to Mashiach, to the Messiah, is from the mouth of Bilaam. This is, again, begins to make sense when you understand everything everything that's leading up here. That, that um, he... He, he articulates that a, um, it says a star is going to come from, from Jacob, right? Who will hold the scepter, right? This, these are all really the, the clearest here. And he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the end of days. So these prophetic, these prophetic things are all coming from Bilaam. So um, again, Bilaam had tremendous potential for greatness but he didn't he didn't refine himself and he didn't he didn't become the person who he could have been in contrast to Moshe 
who totally like achieved his potential in the most phenomenal way. Okay. So now, Bilam, I want to show you something interesting. Uh, there's a, a word, amal, ayin mem lamed. That's how you spell it in Hebrew. It means to work, right? Or to toil. Sometimes it's translated as that, right? Um, there's a, a verse in this week's Parsha. Bilam says that God doesn't see any perverseness, any wrongdoing in Israel. Right? So, and it uses the same word, ayin mem lamed, amal. So, here you see in, um, in the beginning of Breshis, when it's, when it's talking about how we have to work in the Garden of Eden, right? It uses the word amal, ayin mem lamed. And then later on, in a totally different context, when Bilam is, is prophesying, He's saying that God doesn't see any amal, but now it means perverseness in Israel. So what's, what is the connection between these, this the same word that has two very different meanings? Because if a person has perverseness within them, meaning to say a crooked heart or, or just any type of wrongdoing, any, any work that they need to do on themselves, you have to toil, you have to work to straighten it out. So it makes sense that the same word for, you know, corruptness or wrongdoing would be the same word as work, because you have to work to straighten out the wrongdoing. Do you understand? So it makes sense that it's the same word. All right. But now listen to this. Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says that Amal, remember it says that we had to work in the Garden of Eden. And, um, you know, I always bring this teaching because I think this is one of the fundamental teachings that we have to know today, especially in the Western world, where there's so much abundance and there's so much um, luxury, which is that most people's conception of the Garden of Eden is that it was this like super spiritual spa, right? And we blew it. Like the, that, like that it was all good and then we messed it up. But as Reb Shlomo, as my Rebbe put it, if it was all good, what was the snake doing there? Right? So in other words, it, it wasn't all good yet. And God gave us the commandment to work the Garden of Eden before we ate from the tree of knowledge. See, most people think it was all good, it was super fantastic, and then we ate from the tree of knowledge, and then everything went south. Everything fell apart. It's not what it says. What it says is, is that we had to work, amal, ayin mem lamed. We had to work, and then Shabbos was going to come, like an hour later, whatever it is. Like, I'm sure time was like a little bit, you know, different, but that, that Shabbos was going to come, and then that would have been the perfection of the world. But what you see from this, and this is the main point, is that this world is a work session. That the work that we were commanded to do by God came before we ate from the tree of knowledge. After we ate from the tree of knowledge, then it says, oh, now you're going to sweat, you're going to cry to make your bread. But that doesn't mean that we didn't have to work beforehand. We had to work from the very outset. Now we were going to have to work harder. That's a big difference from no work to work. It was from work to hard work. But it started, the premise was work from the, from the outset. Okay? All right, now with that in mind, let's look at this word work. Ayin mem lamed. What is this word work? So ayin 
says Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, stands for Einayim, your eyes. Lamid stands for Lushan. That's your, these are your, this is your tongue, your speech, which is an expression of your thoughts. Okay? And the Mem stands for Mila, which is your sexuality. Okay? So, in other words, what are the three primary areas that a person has to work on? Their, their thoughts, which expresses themselves in their speech. Their eyes, what they, what they choose to look at, right? How they see, what kind of eyes you look at the world with. And one sexuality. Right? This is, these are the areas of our quote-unquote work in this world. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, and there's different arguments. What was the fruit from the tree of knowledge? Right? And, and the Maharal says that basically what's going on when they're arguing about what the fruit was, that really that's an argument of what area in ourselves led to us going against God's will. So according to the Maharal, the, um, the eyes, that correlates with wine, right? So they say, really, it was our eyes that led us astray. The person who says that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was a grape, really what that means is that our eyes led us astray. The person who says that it's wheat, that that was the fruit from the tree of knowledge, that's really that our thoughts led us astray. Okay? And the person who says that it's a fig, that's that our sexuality led us astray. Because it says that we covered ourselves our, um, we, we covered ourselves with a fig leaf. So if you covered yourself with a fig leaf, it must have been a fig tree. Right? And that's the area that you were covering yourself. So, so that means, according to that opinion, that it was our sexuality that led us astray. Very interesting way. You see how there's a, a deep encoding to the Torah and to the explanations of the Torah as well. And one has to dig very, very deeply and explore the commentators to really unlock what the rabbis and what the Torah is really saying. Um, so isn't it interesting that the way you spell Bilam, Bilam is Bez, right? And then he's got the letter Ayin, Lamed, and Mem as his three other letters in his name. So it's, it's like he's, he's the, 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 the headquarters, the headquarters of what needs to be fixed in this world. Remember, he's prophesying about Mashiach. He himself has to do all this work on his own self, right? And he's trying to curse and not bless. He, it's just all sorts of things are all coming together. The core work that we have to do as a people all those letters are within Bilaam's name. Okay. So let's go further. You see, I told you we're going to talk about free choice and we're going to talk about destiny. So, so just to set the historical stage for a moment, I'm sure you all know, but we'll just say it quickly. The Jewish people are heading toward Israel at this point. All right? And you have, they're being still led by Moshe Rabbeinu. Now Moshe has already been told that he's not going to lead the Jewish people into Israel. Now I, I asked, just before we get to the free choice uh, issue, I asked um, Reb Shlomo, how could it be 
that of all the people in the Torah, that Bilam is the one who has the clearest prophecy about the, the Mashiach, about, about the Messiah? Like, and by the way, he says something very, very fascinating. Bilam himself, now this is uh, before the common era, right? You know, what is it? Maybe 2,000 years before the common era, approximately? He says these words, God is not a man, and God doesn't change his mind. Just think about that for, as, in, as in terms of the implications of that for some of the other religions of the world. God is not a man, and God does not change his mind. Amazing, amazing verse that people have to appreciate and, and come to terms with. Um, so how could it be that, that Bilam of all people, is the one who's prophesying about Mashiach, given his level of, of evil, really? So, so what Reb Shlomo said was something to me, to this day, absolutely fascinating. You know, he said that there was so much Mashiach energy in the air because the Jewish people were right at that time, right on the border of Israel, still led by Moshe. And our teaching is that had Moshe led the Jewish people into Israel, that would have been the end of days right there. Right? So here you had, like, in terms of what we talk about in terms of physics, potential energy, Right? If you hold like a brick at you know a few feet off the ground and you drop it, that unleashes a certain amount of energy. If you drop that same brick off the Empire State Building, tremendous more energy comes out. Imagine the level of potential energy in terms of the redemption of the world with Moshe leading the Jewish people right on the border of Israel. Phenomenal, right? So he was tapping into that. And just to add to that Torah, at Shalashudas yesterday, we were talking the idea that um, he's standing next to Balak, King Balak, who's hired Bilaam to curse the Jews, right? Balak, it says he has the descendant Rus, right? Rus is the great-grandmother of King David, which is the Messianic line. So not only does he have Moshe leading the Jewish people, like, in front of him, essentially, on the border of Israel, but he's standing next to Balak, who's got the seed of Mashiach in him. So an amazing, like, level of energy in the world, and he's, at that point, tapping into it and describing everything. That dynamic is, is now, too. That's... So, so let's, go, let's go a little bit further. Um... So getting back to free choice now, getting back to free choice, we have, we have the beginning of this story. Balak comes to Bilaam and says, I want you to curse the Jewish people because the Jewish people now, their armies are just absolutely taking over all the kingdoms in the way and, and Balak knows that he's next and is very afraid. And the irony is, is that the Jewish people have a commandment not to attack them. So they wouldn't have even have been attacked. But nonetheless, he's afraid and he feels like the best advice is for Bilaam to curse the Jewish people. Now, where did Bilaam get this power from? So the rabbis explain something very interesting. That for a tiny, 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 tiny moment, 
And, and in, in Gomorrah Bruchas, they actually give you the formula, and I can't quote it exactly, but I'm going to paraphrase it. It's like a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a moment every day, God is angry. Like, it's this tiny, teensy, teensy window. And that Bilaam knew exactly when that moment was, and he would utter his curse exactly at that moment, and it would be effective. So this is, you know, one would have to really be prophetic to be able to do this. I remembered what I wanted to say before. Um, just for one more moment before we get into the free choice um, discussion. Um, when th- this, this phrase, Ba'achris hayamim, in the end of days, I'm going to tell you what happens in the end of days. You see it in another place in the Torah. Bilaam says it. But Yaakov Avinu, Jacob says it right before he, he dies. He says, gather, he says to his children, gather to tell, together, and I'm going to tell you what happens in the end of days. And the Ishvitzer Rebbe says something beautiful. He says, do you want to know how to bring the end of days? Gather together. <laughs> That's why he says, gather together, and then I'm going to tell you what happens in the end of days. In other words, that level of unity, if we have that level of unity, then that's going to lead to the end of days in a positive way, right? So, so it says afterwards that after Jacob says this, that I'm going to tell you what happens in the end of days, then he gives blessings to all of his children. So, so I heard Rabbi Posey talking about this. He said that, that from Jacob's point of view, the end of days, he, he, he saw the spiritual dimensions of it. He's seeing the, the blessing aspect of it. Whereas if you look at Bilaam's account of the end of days, there's a lot of destruction. And Bilaam, right before he says his prophecy of destruction at the end of days and things like this, although he says Israel will be triumphant, he says, he says I, Bilaam, the son of um, Beor, will... Who the one with the open eye says the following. So what's this idea of the open eye? So, and why is he seeing destruction whereas Jacob is focusing on the blessing? This is the question. So I want to just give you my my take on this. So there's something um, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver discusses a seemingly difficult to understand phrase in the story of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, which is that after they eat from the tree of knowledge, it says their eyes were opened and they saw each other's nakedness, right? And they were like ashamed and then they covered themselves. So what happened exactly? What does this mean that their eye was open? Normally speaking, when we talk about, oh, you really opened my eyes to that. Normally speaking, it, it's said in a positive context, and it's, it means a more spiritual thing. And yet, here you see, in, in Breshis, it says, their eyes were opened and they saw each other's nakedness. So it seems strange, like, what's, what's going on? It, it's not the normal use of the opening of the eyes. So what Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says is that their eyes were open to materiality. Because before they ate from the tree, they were just very spiritually inclined, right? They were like creatures of light. Then all of a sudden, they become more physicalized. 
And so their eye becomes open to each other's physicality and materiality. So it's almost like more of a shutting of the eye, if you will. But it's an opening of the eye in a different dimension to the, uh, to the dimension of physicality and materiality, which was new. So when, when Bilaam speaks, he says, I am the one with the open eye. So I want to connect it to, to that opening up of the eye, meaning to say that he has a vision of the end of days, but his eye is open to materiality, and he's seeing all the destruction that's going to take place. Right? Whereas Yaakov sees only blessing that's going to exist. And let's just take it one step further. <clears throat> Something that's very confusing to people. Um, but let's try to understand it. How can it be when we talk about Mashiach, when we talk about the, the, the fixing of the whole world, the perfection of the world, the end of days, right? It seems all positive and everything like that. But then we also have all these words like apocalypse, right? Which seems like, and, and, and Bilaam seems to be discussing it here with levels of destruction and things like that. We have in Torah the, our phraseology, the, the war of Gogu Magog, right? Which is like just this cataclysmic war that's taking place. So what's going on? Is it, is it Mashiach? Is it good? Is it, is it peace? Or is it, you know, huge amounts of worldwide war? What is it? One or the other? Like, why are you putting them both together? It's too confusing. So, and then what do we, and what about this teaching that either Mashiach can come, you know, if we're worthy, or we'll also come if we're not worthy, or he can come early, or he'll come on time. What, what, what are all these teachings? So we can, we can answer them all very, very simply. You see, you know, I always like to say that, that Darwin aside for a moment, we can discuss that another time, the Jewish people believe very, very deeply in evolution. We believe in the evolution of the world, that the world is evolving toward perfection, the evolution of human beings that were evolving toward expanded consciousness, and everything like this. Okay. So... So basically, there's an, a quantum level of light that's going to be coming down into the world. And the question is, do we have the vessels to hold this light or not? If through our mitzvot, if through our really refining ourselves and elevating ourselves spiritually, if we do that, we will make vessels to hold that light. Mashiach will come early. It will be a peaceful transition into the next era. And everything will be okay. If we don't, it's coming anyway. That level of perfection is coming anyway, either way, because it's destined for the world. God did not create a world for it to remain broken for all eternity. God in his perfection did not create a broken world. This world that we live in right now is a world that's in transition toward perfection. That's what we're doing here. We're partners with God in terms of achieving that vision. And we do our part through the mitzvot, through the Torah mitzvot. That's how it's done. If we don't have the vessels to hold the light, then that light comes crashing through and it will manifest itself in this world as the apocalypse, as world war, as conflagration, all those things. And so ultimately it's up to us, right? So that's what Bilaam is seeing. Bilaam, it says, with the open eye, remember, with an eye open to materiality, he's seeing sort of like the situational aspects of it, 
It doesn't have to be like that. And the ball is in our court. Okay, so now this is a very good introduction to, to us and our lives and our choices. Okay? So, so Balak, King Balak, sends these emissaries to Bilaam and he says, curse the Jews. And Bilaam says, you know, let me ask God. And God says, don't do it. Right? The Jews are blessed. Don't curse them. Don't go with them. And then uh, he sends them away. And Balak is thinking, wait a second. This sounds like very spiritual for Bilaam. <laughs> oh, I know what it is. I didn't offer him enough money. And I also didn't send high enough uh, emissaries to him. He was insulted that I sent low-level people to him. Now I'm going to send the fanciest people to him, and I'm going to offer him the most money, and we'll see what he says. So Bilaam has already been told unequivocally by God, don't go with them. Now Bilaam goes, looks at the situation and says, you know what, let me ask God again. <laughs> so he asks God again, and God says, okay, go with them. But don't, don't do any, you don't say anything, basically, you won't be able to say anything that, that I don't tell you to say, you know. So he tells them, look, I'm going to go with you, but just know that I can't do anything that God doesn't want. Right? So, so now, now we have to understand that there's a major, major, major teaching about life in that, in that episode that I just described. First of all, it looks like God changed his mind. So no, a thousand, ten thousand percent God didn't change his mind. First he says, don't go. Then he says, go. God changed his mind, right? He absolutely didn't change his mind. Okay. We have to understand that. Give us a few moments to understand that. Um, <clears throat> we have a very core teaching in Torah. Extremely important teaching. Which is that God is creating and recreating the world every single moment. Breshis, which, which is classically mistranslated as in the beginning, as though it was a historical event. Really, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Breshis means with beginnings, or out of beginnings God created the world. In other words, the, the fabric of the world itself is made out of beginnings. Every single moment is a beginning, not in a Hallmark greeting card way, in a real way, that actually every single moment is actually a new beginning. So, so Bilaam, so, so Bilaam asks God, like, what should I do? And God says, don't go with him. But you see, God looks to us also. And he looks at where we're holding, what spiritual level we're on, and what kind of choices that we want to make. And he's creating brand new maps every single moment in terms of which way we can travel in the world. Right? You know, on the one hand, it's sort of like, oh, I just bumped into that guy. But that's a reflection of who you are at that moment, that you bumped into that person at the store, right? 
if you were a different person or if you were holding at a different level, and maybe when you bump into that person it's for the good, maybe it's not so much for the good, right? I remember I bumped into a guy and we had a great conversation and we started a project together. It was like, it was as though I had a surgical procedure that took six months out of my life, <laughs> you know? At the time it seemed like, wow, this is great. <laughs> You know, it wasn't great, <laughs> right? But I'm sure we all have stories also where you bump into someone. Look, the night I met my wife, she just bumped into someone on the street. And that person took my wife to this party where I met her. That's a, that was a good version of bumping, right? So you, you, we don't know. And then we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But what I'm saying is, is that Moment by moment, according to the choices that we want to make, new maps are unfolding. New maps, new, new, new maps are unfolding in terms of how we're traveling through this world. Okay? So, it says, God says, here's what I want from you. And then, then we say, okay, God, here's what I want from you. <laughs> right? But, it says in Pirkei Avos, bless you, what, what, that we should make our will God's will. In other words, what we want to do should be what God wants us to do. We want to have those two wills in harmony with each other. This is, this is the ultimate. This is what we strive for. That our will should be His will. Right? Now, now I told you that God didn't change His mind. On the surface, it looks like God changed his mind, but God didn't change his mind. First, he says, Bilaam, don't go with him. Then he says to Bilaam, he saw clearly that Bilaam had been seduced by the honor, the increased honor that he had been given, by the increased offers of wealth that he had been given. So now all of a sudden, in terms of the world being made out of beginnings, the fluidity of existence, God now sees that he's dealing with someone else. So now God is dealing with the new Bilaam, where he's holding at this new level. And he says to him, okay, you want to go with him? Go with him. But God's will is still going to be done in both instances. And now we can go deeper. Every single one of us has a truth that God wants us to communicate to the world. I'm going to say that again. I learned this from Rabbi Aaron, and I'm going to give you the example that he that he gave us. Every single one of us has a truth that God wants us to communicate to the world. And we're going to communicate that truth because that's God's will. The question is, how are we going to communicate that truth? And that's going to be our choice in terms of the extent to which we make our will God's will. And now I'll give you an example that Rabbi Aaron gave. He says, imagine there's a husband and a wife, and the husband is doing a lot of business, and he's spending almost no time with the family. And so the wife says to the husband, if you don't cut back on your business and spend more time with the family, because that's important, right? Then I'm divorcing you. So the husband hears the ultimatum, right? It's either cut back or lose the family. 
So then he gets a big uh, offer. A big offer to travel, let's say, to Hong Kong, right, to do a big business deal. It's going to take him more away from the family. By the way, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that whenever you resolve to do something more spiritual, know that you're going to receive a test. Right? That's, that's very important, especially for us in modern-day America to understand, because we think that if I resolve to do something better, I want to be a better person, God should give me a candy bar at that moment. <laughs> right? Like, like, chutzpah, God is giving me a test? Because <laughs> they say, as Rabbi Nachman puts it, in Shemayim, in heaven, they say, okay, he says he wants to be better. She says she wants to be better. Okay, let's see. Let's see if they're for real. Right? And a test is then your opportunity to demonstrate in reality, your, your level of commitment and your level of seriousness. So the person in this example takes the business deal in Hong Kong and his wife divorces him. Now, what truth is communicated to the world? Oh, they got divorced. Do you know why? Because he wasn't spending enough time with the family because family time is so important. So the importance of family time gets communicated to the world, right? Now, let's do the other side. Let's say he turns down the deal in Hong Kong, right? Now, what is communicated to the world? <gasps> Did you hear? He turned down a huge deal in Hong Kong in order to spend time with his family. Do you see how important family time is? Do you see in both ways the same truth is communicated to the world? the importance of family time. But he gets to choose in what way that truth is going to be communicated. In one example, either way, the truth got communicated to the world. In one instance, he lost his family. In the other instance, he kept his family, but maybe a few dollars less in his bank account. So... Let's connect this back to Bilam. It says that the Jewish people are blessed. So you can't curse them. Because they're blessed. That they're the source of blessing to the world. Okay? So, so Bilam goes from in the beginning of the Parsha, in the beginning of the account. And by the way, just... Well, let's just finish this point. In the beginning, he's saying... I can't say, I, I can't curse what God has blessed. Then, as the Parsha continues, he's actively trying to curse them. <laughs> and he's absolutely confounded when every time he opens his mouth to curse them, blessings come out. And so in the end, what truth does he communicate to the world? That you can't curse the Jewish people. That you can't curse what's blessed. He becomes the living, historic, for all times, embodiment of that truth. But he gets killed by the sword and falls down to Gehenna. So in the beginning, he knew this truth. And he could have said, okay, look, I understand you want me to curse. I can't curse the Jews because they're blessed. So... He could have sent them away. I understand you're offering me a lot of money. I get it. Thank you. No thank you. 
And he could have continued to live his life. Right? But he ends up communicating the exact same thing at the end. And his personal fall is extreme. Not only is he a disappointment to himself, I'm sure, but he lets down the nations of the world because he was a great soul that was meant to be a light unto the nations as well. So there's a very historic fall in, in, in Billy. So relating it back to us, relating it back to us, we have to understand that each one of us also is going to communicate a certain truth to the world. And then the question is, how are we going to do it, right? And, and so um, the best way to communicate, to make sure that you're communicating your truth to the world in the, in the best possible way is by keeping the Torah mitzvahs. It's by keeping the Torah. Because then you'll be in harmony. You'll be in harmony with God's will. Your will be, will become God's will. And you'll be a conduit for that to come out in the best, highest way. So, so this is, this is, uh, this is Bilaam. And we see, we see one more thing. It's on a slightly different subject, but just want to make the point. That just, Bilaam is a, a, a unique chapter in the Torah. For the reason that there are precise conversations recorded between Bilaam and Balak that Moshe clearly wasn't there to write down. In other words, you see that the Torah was written by God from the fact that events that Moshe had no proximity to whatsoever and was not conversations that Moshe was not a part of are recorded exactly in the Torah as they took place. So, so we have to understand, we have to understand that, that, the, that our choices matter. Our choices really matter. And again, here you see an example of how one has free choice, and yet the destiny is still the same. That God knows what is going to happen, meaning to say he knows what truth is going to be communicated, and it's going to be communicated Either way, but you also see how we have free choice at the same time in terms of how that is going to be communicated. So here you have a very interesting reconciliation of this classic philosophical conundrum. I want to, that's really the end of that, okay? I want to just tack on a PS, okay? Which is, which is the following. I didn't have a chance to read the article yet, so I just kind of glanced at it. But I, I, I saw something striking. In, in this week's Aisha Torah um, uh, email, they said that they uncovered a, uh, a 70-year-old diary of a survivor of the Holocaust. And that apparently it's, it's beautifully written and it's, you know, the person was just describing just what he was going through in, a, in an amazing way. I really want to read the article. But what struck me was, here's someone who died in the Holocaust, 
and he's describing a miraculous salvation that he had. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, here he's recorded some escape from death that he had, some close call with the Nazis, that somehow miraculously he was able to survive, and he still died. And he still died in the Holocaust. And I thought, wow, how many of the six million who died in the Holocaust at some point before they died had some legitimately miraculous salvation before they died? You know, like, like you hear stories about how people escaped from Poland to Amsterdam. And like, how did they do it? it miracles. And then they got killed in Amsterdam. So, probably, and believe me, this is utter speculation on my part, probably there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of miraculous salvations that were done on behalf of people who ended up dying in the Holocaust anyway. So then I was thinking, well then why, why, right? They're going to die anyway. Then what are you making miracles for, for people who are going to die anyway? And then I thought to myself, because they had a period of time after that that they still had to live. And that those days were of critical importance to their soul and to the world. And then I thought, you know, I'll speak for myself, but I think this is true for most of us. We tend to, to our great disadvantage and discredit, say, I'm in this chunk of my life right now. Oh, oh, what are you doing right now? Oh, I'm in school, right? So that's going to be the next four years of my life. Or what are you doing right now? You know, oh, I'm working this job. You know, and that's going to be, who knows, how much of a chunk of the person's life. But here you see that every single day is a completely different category and of a completely different level of importance. Because God could have just said, oh, they're in the category of the people who are going to die in the Holocaust. Let's just end them now. And yet you see that God made a miraculous salvation in order to keep them alive further, even though their fate was not to survive. Which means a person can't just say, oh, I'm in this period of my life where I'm doing X. Because God doesn't think that way. Every single day is a brand new day. Even if a person, as in this case, God forbid we should know from it, is destined to die anyway. Nonetheless, you see that every single day was a critical day of importance to that person's soul and to the whole world. So how much more so for us? Can we not just write off chunks of our life? Oh, now I'm in an unhappy marriage. So this, this, that's this chunk of my marriage. Now I want to get married. Oh, that's this chunk of my life. We do ourselves a tremendous disservice when we just sort of like with one phrase, like, sort of like just this umbrella term, just explain away our hours and our days, which can be used in phenomenal ways. 
that are obviously critically important to the world, to our souls, and to God. So let's not fall into that trap of limiting ourselves and, in a sense, writing ourselves off or writing off blocks of time, right? And to really allow ourselves to to actually live life and not just have life live us. 